This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's good to have you here, and I appreciate you joining me. My, uh, my, uh, I, this is something that I'm into uh, completely. I've always been a big believer in the intelligent design uh, hypothesis, and clearly you are as well. Let me introduce you to my audience. Stephen C. Meyer uh, has received a PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge, a former geophysicist and college professor. He now directs Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. And addition uh, to, to Meyer's landmark book, the New, New York Times bestselling Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life, and the case for intelligent design, and the book uh, Signature of in the Cell: DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, and then of course the peer-reviewed volume Darwinism, Design, and Public Education, published in 2004, Michigan State University, and uh, Explore Evolution, also published in 2007. So it is clear. Has it always been the case, uh, Stephen, that you? are a proponent of intelligent design always, or did it happen because of some discovery that you had? Well, it, uh, I first became interested in the idea in the mid-80s when I was a very young scientist. I attended a conference in Dallas where I was working. Uh, I was working at, at, at the time as a geophysicist doing what was called digital signal processing, which is an early form of information technology. And I attended a conference uh, on the origin of life and the origin of the universe, two great big subjects that intersect science and philosophy, and uh, discovered listening to a very spirited discussion on a panel between proponents of what was then um, not really even called intelligent design. It was just a, a very nascent idea that there must be some sort of intelligent cause that played a role in the origin of life. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other, there were proponents of a strictly chemical evolutionary theory um, that proposed that you could explain the origin of the first life as a result of undirected chemical processes. And both sides in the discussion agreed that the problem of the origin of the first life had not been solved. There wasn't an adequate chemical evolutionary theory. And the big problem that they both recognized, both sides recognized, was the origin of the information that stored in DNA and other large uh, what are called biomacromolecules, things like RNA and proteins, and that on the one side, uh, the the uh, the proponents of the chemical evolutionary approach said, "Hey, give us more time, we'll figure this out." And on the other side, the scientists were saying, "Well, wait a minute, isn't information typically a product of of mind?" Uh, and at that point, I got really intrigued. Maybe what we're looking at at the foundation of life in the the code that's stored in the DNA, the digital code that's stored is actually evidence of a designing intelligence. Um, and so I entered, entered into some fascinating conversations with some of the scientists I met at that conference who were proponents of this idea. It later became known as the theory of intelligent design or the evidence for intelligent design. I went to grad school in Cambridge for four years, did a PhD on origin of life biology, 
And uh, by the time I finished that, I was pretty convinced that we were, in fact, looking at evidence of design in the cell. And uh, so I think sometime in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, I became convinced of intelligent design, and I've been working on it ever since. It's interesting because in, in, in philosophy classes that I, I took in college, particularly around 1991, there was a lot of discussion about intelligent design, creationism uh, versus random causation. And uh, it, it was always a sticking point that it seemed to me even then that science was hesitant to embrace any notion of intelligent design because it, 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 it almost gives credence to the idea of a god or an all-powerful, and you'd have to be an all-powerful creator in order to design such a complex living organism as the universe with all of its antecedents. So how is it that science can still, with a straight face, uh, assume hypothetically that random causation is how we got here by accident? How can they, how can they put faith in that kind of a... Well, the- yeah, there's a, 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 a sometimes unspoken but sometimes spoken rule of method that many scientists adhere to and regard as effectively normative for them. And that rule has a name. It's called methodological naturalism. And it states simply that if you're going to explain something scientifically, you must limit yourself to strictly materialistic explanations, those based on Uh, chance or randomness, as you mentioned, or other types of materialistic explanations, such as natural laws or undirected processes like uh, natural selection. Um, The problem with that rule, though, is that um, in many many realms of science, it's not a problematic rule. Uh, First, I should say that, because in many realms of science, you're just asking, how does one part of nature affect another part? And questions of that form... uh, give rise naturally to questions about what nature is doing on its own, unassisted by intelligence. But if you're asking questions about causal origins and ultimate causal origins, questions about the origin of the first life or questions about the origin of the universe or questions about how the universe acquired its finely tuned structure, uh, an answer might be, an, an adequate answer might involve only undirected material processes, but the right answer might also involve Uh, the idea of creative intelligence, that maybe a mind played a role in some of the features, in the origin of some of the features that we see in life or the universe. And so if you close yourself off from that possibility uh, a priori, before you have any experience, before you've even examined the data, you may may end up, because of your rule of method, um, miss the right answer. You may not get the best explanation. You may only get the best explanation among an artificially limited set of materialistic possibilities. And so one of the things we've been doing in the intelligent design research community is not only looking at the evidence, the striking evidence of design in life and the universe and our planetary system and other, other parts of nature, but also challenging that rule of method and suggesting that um, we need to have a more open philosophy of science that allows us to consider the best explanation, whatever, whether it conforms to those materialistic sensibilities or not. And, um, and so um, much of my work has actually been involved with challenging the, the, the rule of uh, method known as methodological naturalism and showing that it's, it's intellectually limiting for the scientist. And that really, we, we want to follow the evidence uh, and uh, come up with the, the, the best explanation. No holds barred, as one of my colleagues yeah. puts it. Mm-hmm. 
And 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 so where did this come from? Uh, I've I've done some reading on the early enlightenment uh, enlightenment period, the age of reason, if you will, and it seemed to me more of a reaction to the overbearing church. They there was such an attempt to get away from the grips of this authoritative clergy that, that, you know, we all know the story of Galileo and Copernicus, and a lot of these early scientists were were actually uh, excommunicated because of their views of, of, of a solar system in, in, instead of an Earth-centrist universe. Uh, so was, was the secularism that was part of the early fabric of science a reaction to distance itself from religion? Uh, well, I think there was a movement in philosophy, uh, actually, the one you mentioned, the, known as the Enlightenment, the famous movement in philosophy, which was an attempt to establish the legitimacy of human reason apart from divine revelation and uh, and a, a separation of reason and revelation, although there were theistic and Christian versions of the Enlightenment as well. So it was not a, a unitary kind of movement, mm. but there was a, a very secular uh, emphasis in some parts of, or in some some uh, Enlightenment thinkers, and um, in as that began, to, that began to affect science in the 19th century. And there was a, there's a famous uh, philosopher named August Comte, mm, who yes, argued that science, as it progresses, goes through three stages. There's a, a theological stage, which is essentially mythological. He thought, you know, invoking gods and thunderbolts and that sort of thing. And then there's a um, a philosophical stage, and there he exemplified by people like Aristotle and Plato with concepts like the forms or things like that. And then there's a positive stage where we explain everything by reference to natural laws, and that's the scientific stage. And so science, in the way he defined it, uh, necessarily must extricate itself from theological superstitions and explain everything by reference to undirected material processes, in particular laws of nature. Darwin was very much influenced by Comte, and in The Origin of Species, you saw this for the first time, or one of the first times, this kind of intentional rhetorical strategy of defining any explanation by reference to creative intelligence or mind or design or God as an unscientific explanation. So when Darwin was looking at a phenomenon known as homology, the similarity of structure in different organisms, uh, morphological structure, he said, well, you know, there is this other explanation, uh, the idea that, that um, the similarity is the result of uh, a, a div- divine or uh, design. Mm-hmm. But he said, but, but he says, but that's not a scientific explanation. No. So he acknowledged no. that it could explain the data, but it was not. Uh, the, the similarity might be the result of a common design from a, 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 a singular intelligence, but he said that's not a scientific explanation, and therefore he elected his alternative as the only one that could really be considered. And, you, and, and we've seen this rhetorical strategy now played out in these origins questions for 160 years, and the intelligent design movement, as you mentioned, is challenging that because uh, there, are, there are very striking indicators of design in living systems, for example, that are not well explained by undirected material processes, but are exactly the kind of thing that we know to be the case, know to uh, know to have arisen based on our uniform and repeated experience from the activity of intelligence. And one of those strike, most striking indicators is, is information, especially information that is functional and is expressed in a digital or alphabetic form. And that's essentially what we have in living systems. 
Uh, Stephen Meyer is my guest, a philosopher of science, author of uh, some incredible works, which we'll get into uh, in more detail. So are we any closer to understanding how the mind... uh, Before I ask you that, I argued once uh, to a professor of religion at a university who was an admitted atheist. I said, well... How do you how do you uh, explain pattern and consistency of laws? Are they not denoting of intelligence? Because patterns, after all, do indicate form, and form is not accidental. Form is it, it adheres to strict laws of, of of physical science. So even in in observing physical laws, we observe patterns that repeat at different levels, varying levels. For example, a, a simple drop of a you know, a pebble in in a pond. You see a concentric circle that moves out uniformly. It, it's not haphazard. It's not variable. It's it's in a uniform pattern. So I've argued that pattern itself is is a great clue to the fact that that the universe, however it came to be and however we came to be, must have been a pre-planned event. And it seems to be that there's more of an argument for that rather than random causation. Well, um, the early scientists, uh, Newton, Boyle, Kepler, for example, thought that what we call the laws of nature are actually an expression of uh, uh, divine action, that um, the, the term laws of nature was, as one historian has put it, a juridical metaphor of theological origin. There are laws in nature. <laughs> there are these regularities because there is a lawgiver or law sustainer, someone who is sustaining the orderly concourse of nature. And this was actually Newton's view, and it was expressed mm. uh, uh, in his uh, grand work, the Principia, which was exploring the, the mathematical um, structure of nature as a way of understanding the, the mind of God. Um, and he wrote a theological epilogue to the uh, Principia called the General Scolium, in which he essentially paraphrased the passage from the uh, book of Colossians, where it says, in, in God all things are, are held together. And um, so this is, this is a, a, a very um, uh, venerable view of, of what the laws of nature are, that these patterns that we see, these patterns of regularity. Now, naturalists, um, naturalistically minded philosophers have said, well, the, the, the laws of nature are, are in essence, the, the ground of all being. They are the, the prime reality, the thing that explains everything else. Uh, Sean Carroll has said that naturalism is the worldview that holds that, that uh, ultimately, that there are there is a series of explanations in terms of natural processes that ultimately finds its uh, that finds its ultimate explanation in the laws of nature, and then you can go no further. So, for the 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 naturalistic philosopher as opposed to the theistic one, the laws of nature are the ultimate explanatory principles, the ultimate realities, and they need no further explanation. They just are. What we've been doing in the in the intelligent design movement is showing that there's another way to detect design besides just merely pattern. And that is the idea that um, when you have events or systems that uh, exhibit both a a pattern that we know independently from some other realm of experience and that pattern is highly improbable, uh, uh, improbable as it were against the backdrop of what nature ordinarily does, 
then we can detect the special action of divine intelligence or or of some intelligence. And uh, so, for example, we've uh, often used the faces on the the mountain at Mount Rushmore as an example. There's a pattern there, but it's a highly improbable and irregular pattern that you would not expect to arise based on wind and erosion or other natural processes. And it's a pattern that we recognize from independent experience. So when we see those faces, we immediately recognize that a designing intelligence must have been involved. Um, the idea that that um, God is the ultimate explanation for the regularities of nature is a possible explanation. But in the case of a pattern that's also highly improbable against what natural laws typically produce, uh, then we have an argument that is not just possible, but definitely the best. Or the, uh, We have evidence of design as the best explanation, not merely a possible explanation. And the kind of in, uh, the, the other... Uh, uh, kind of indicator of design that we've identified that's that's decisive is the presence of information because we know of only one known cause for information again especially as we find it in a digital or alphabetic form and that's what we have in DNA Bill Gates has said that DNA is like a software program but much more complex than any we've ever created Richard Dawkins the great scientific atheist from Great Britain has himself acknowledged that DNA contains machine code. One of our great uh, biotech engineers, biotechnicians, uh, Leroy Hood, out here in Seattle, has said that DNA simply contains digital code. Well, what we know from experience is that such code always arises from a programmer. And uh, in fact, whenever we see information and we trace it back to its ultimate source, whether we're talking about a paragraph in a book or a hieroglyphic inscription or information embedded in a radio signal or information in a, in, a, in a computer program of some kind, we always trace it back or come ultimately to a mind, not an undirected material process. So the laws of nature may well be a product of, of, a, of, a, of an underlying, uh, the, the hidden hand of God, if you will. But when we encounter information in a complex functional and digital form, we have decisive evidence of intelligent design. And that's that's where we've laid the stress in our work. And is this because we have become better at looking and evaluating our own DNA and how it works? And because up until recently, we it, that's a new area of, of exploration, is it not? DNA and well, getting the, into the... the the breakthrough. And yeah, thanks for asking. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, the... the um, the breakthrough in this area of study came in the 1950s and 60s in a period that historians of science now call the molecular biological revolution. It wasn't that long ago, but Watson and Crick elucidated the structure of DNA in 1953. In 57 and 58, uh, Crick um, proposed something he called the sequence hypothesis, which was the idea that the chemical subunits that run along the interior of the DNA molecule, if you Think back to high school biology. Think of that twisting helix. Right. And along the inside of that helix, there are chemical subunits called bases that run up and down the spine of the helix, uh, some on each side, and there's what they call complementary base pairing and all that. But Crick proposed that those, those subunits called bases are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text, or we could say now like the zeros and ones in a section of software, which is to say that the the bases do not perform their function in virtue of their 
chemical properties or their shapes or their, their the mass or anything like that of physical or chemical properties, but instead in virtue of their arrangement in accord with an independent mm-hmm. symbol convention. Which is similar to binary code. Genetic code. So yeah. inside life, we have genetic code and genetic text. And that's where this all began, this information-based analysis of life. That's fascinating. And do, would you say that uh, having gone this far, where did life or how do you feel? It, oh, by the way, I just read the other day that they have now completed the whole genetic code of humanity, right? This is something I read in where they have mapped out the entire genome structure of of the human DNA is that uh, well sure. I think uh, Francis Crick first announced the complete sequencing of the human genome in 2000 and um, uh, Craig Ventner had a, a big hand in that uh, there were both private and publicly funded groups working on that and they, they keep uh, making advances in in categorizing the genetic information that's contained therein but yeah this is a big discovery yeah. that you know even our human genome we, we we've known since Watson, about the mid-60s, sorry, since the mid-60s, Crick's hypothesis of the sequence hypothesis has been well established. It was confirmed by a series of experiments on both sides of the Atlantic. It was, it, it was not the kind of prediction or um, proposal that you could, you could confirm with one simple experiment. It was really a matter of mapping out how the information in the DNA is directing the construction of the proteins and protein machines that keep cells alive. That's called the gene expression system or the pro- uh, system for protein synthesis. So sin- since then, we've known that Crick's idea was, was essentially correct. And, uh, and then there have been vast uh, advances in a field known as bioinformatics, in which we've been able to map the genomes of, of uh, letter by letter to figure out, A, what's there, and, and, and increasingly, probably what you're referring to is we, we're getting more and more information about what the different sections of the genome do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, we've been able to do that for, scientists have been able to do that for, for multiple organisms. So understanding the informational properties at the foundation of life for many different organisms has been a big part of biology, uh, certainly, uh, since since uh, year 2000. But this is exciting stuff. Um, and I know we don't have a, all day because I could go all day on this one. Let's talk about the mind for a minute. Um, is mind a physical reality, in other words, or is it superimposed upon the mechanism of our conscience? In other words, does it act independently of the material world? And that's what, what do we know about the mind that we didn't know what are the recent discoveries we've learned about the mind that leads you to believe that there might be a universal mind? Well, there, there are two different um, basic views of, of, of the, what's called the mind-body question. One is that, is that the, the, the material brain is primary, and what we experience as uh, consciousness is a kind of uh, um, epiphenomenon or byproduct of, of material processes, but it is in really no way um, a separate kind of reality, um, <clears throat> and that everything that we uh, experience is, is a very direct product of neurophysiological processes. The other view is that the brain is being used by the mind as an organ of sense and an organ of thought, and uh, and so the, the mind is is uh, actually the mental realm is really quite separate from the 
the the material the material substrate that does indeed make it possible but the idea here is that the brain is a necessary but not sufficient condition of what's taking place in the mind we can reason um, because of the the properties or powers of our minds our reasoning is not governed by the neurophysiological events that are taking place in our synapses or something mm. so it's not the the chemistry isn't determining our thought the chemistry makes possible uh, the, the mind's function, the, 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 the neurochemistry of the brain, but it's, it's necessary but not sufficient. Um, and that the mind, therefore, has its own um, capabilities and uh, one well, of which is logic. Well, it's spontaneous. Deliberate. The, yeah. The most, and, and I tend to the second view. I think yeah. the, the mind, and I think there's, a lot of, there's actually a lot of physiological evidence that, the, that the, what's going on in the brain cannot... Um, explain everything that's going on in the mind and that the mind is using the brain. And I think all of us have the sense that we can make choices. You know, when I lift my arm, um, I, I'm putting in motion a new, um, series of cause and effect events that, that, that begin with a choice in my mind, not as a result of something that happened in my, my brain, something happens in my brain as a result of my mental choice, but the, the, the mental is primary. Um, and, I think that's when people actually think about this deeply and are introspective about the powers of their own agency. We all are self-consciously aware beings. We have an intuitive awareness of what our minds can do. We all sense that we can initiate new lines of cause and effect. Um, That is to say, we can make choices that make a difference in how things happen in the physical world. So there, I think as uh, counterintuitive as it is in a materialistic scientific age to think of something immaterial controlling something material, I think that's actually much more consistent with our own direct introspective experience of what minds do and what we as thinking self-conscious agents uh, and of the powers that we as self-conscious agents have. Um, This is obviously a huge discussion, but I think there are both philosophical reasons to hold this, what's called a mind-body dualist position, and uh, neurophysiological uh, experiments that support the idea that the the mind is not the brain, and the brain is not the mind. The mind is controlling and using the brain as an organ of, of sense and, and thought. Well, I guess you could put it this way. You know, you've got a, an airplane, you've got a pilot, you've got a navigator, and the pilot seems to know where the direction it wants to head. And uh, the, the, the airplane represents, I think, the body, the physical body. And uh, it's an interesting and ongoing discussion. It's one of the reasons I like philosophy, because you can discuss it from age to age. And it's just fascinating. StephenCMeyer.org is the website. Stephen, that's uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, uh, Cmeyer.org, the author of The Return of the God Hypothesis. Also, his previous works, Darwin's Doubt. And the uh, D- uh, cell DNA and the evidence of intelligent design. And I, I wish I had more time. I want to I, w- just real quickly. What were the markers, in your opinion, that give 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 rise to the hypothesis that DNA was an organized structure? In other words, it was designed. What were some of the markers that you found? Well, it's it's the presence of the information that's directing the protein synthesis and the use of a code to translate the information from one form into a useful uh, form of information for the production of the proteins. Um, And that's one of the three um, indicators of 
d intelligent design in the universe is the intelligent design in life. In the book, I also look at what's called the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics and the other basic physical parameters that make life possible in the universe. So we see not only evidence of design arising long after the beginning of the universe in the first life, but we also see evidence of design in the fine-tuning of the physical parameters of the universe from the very beginning of the universe, which suggests a designing intelligence which is not only active in the creation, but also must transcend the creation, must have the capability of structuring the whole of the creation from the beginning. And then the third key piece of evidence that I look at for what I call not just an intelligent design hypothesis, but the God hypothesis, God as the designer, is that the universe itself, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy, had a definite beginning a finite time ago, before which it would be impossible to provide a materialistic explanation because before the origin of matter, there would be no matter to right. do <laughs> the ultimate causing. Right. So you need something that transcends matter, space, time, and energy, is capable of initiating a huge change of state, is immensely powerful, and is also intelligent enough to structure everything to produce a life-friendly universe. Does that remind you of anyone? <laughs> it's exactly. kind of the argument of the book. I think <laughs> what I argue is that, that uh, a theistic God, insofar as it has the, those necessary properties, provides the best explanation for the origin of life in the universe, and that's what I call the return of the God hypothesis. Mm. I'm sure it's great reading. I encourage people listening to this uh, podcast to join Stephen C. Meyer in his journey. It's a wonderful journey, and he'll show you things you probably never thought about before. StephenCMeyer.org, the name of the book, Return of the God Hypothesis. And I thank you. It's an honor to speak with you. Big fan of yours, and I hope we can have you on again real soon. 